Data, data everywhere, but how do we use it? We'll ask Corey Schwartz, Vice President of Stats at MLB.com and MLB Advanced Media, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 22nd. It's show number 35 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Stats at MLB.com and MLB Advanced Media, about the new StatCast data, about protecting the lead in his league, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at closers on the trading block, Nolan Arenado, and more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson, looking at Yulieski Guriel, more injuries in Texas, another Tommy John in Anaheim, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Dodgers outfielder Alex Verdugo. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at some potential trade followed in Philadelphia as well as filling the fielder void in Texas. And it's a big void. In our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Houston prospect Alex Bregman and Seattle reliever Edwin Diaz. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about spelunking in the endless caverns of StatCast data. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The trade deadline is coming up fast. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Before we get started with some in-depth news, I'd like to mention something that appeared at BaseballHQ.com on Friday morning, namely uh, the news that A.J. Pollock of Arizona, thought to be out for the year with a fractured elbow, might be back this season. He might indeed. I mean, what a what a uh, change that would be if A.J. Pollock were suddenly back for a month of the season. As, uh, as the, our article said this morning, on uh, as Ryan Bloomfield said on Pete Playing Time Tomorrow, uh, there's no one out there as a call-up who would have the kind of impact that a month of A.J. Pollock would have. So uh, if I were, uh, you know, we, we thought he was going to be done. He's apparently doing um, doing baseball activities at this, at this point, hitting off a tee, throwing, those kinds of things. And so uh, I, if, if A.J. Pollock's on the waiver wire in any league I'm in, I'm going to tuck him away for the last month. Uh, uh, certainly a lot of possibilities there if he makes it back. I know a lot of leagues, I play in Tout Wars, of course, in the American League, so it's not an issue for me directly, but in our league, if you lose a player early in the season to an injury, you can waive him and recover some of his salary as fab refund, so you get uh, some benefit out of it, but there are a lot of leagues that reward you for dropping a guy who's on the DL early in the season, so it sounds, when you say, you know, if... A.J. Pollock's on the waiver wire, well, you, people might scoff and say, why would he be on the waiver wire ever, even with just people put him on the DL? But lots of leagues don't have DLs. They only have reserve lists. There's limited slots available. There's a lot of reasons that teams might have dropped A.J. Pollock. So check your league wa- waiver wire because, uh, depending on your league rules, he could be out there. And as you said, what a speculation grab, especially in keeper leagues, depending on your rules. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. It, depending on the on what your waiver wire rules are and how many guys you can you can stash and all those kinds of things, uh, AJ Pollock is probably the best stash you could have right now if he's going to be back in September. Nick, we're bearing down on the trading deadline August 1st this year, I think a day later than usual because uh, it's the first Monday that's available. And Whatever you call it, it's a little more than a week away. We've got a lot of rumors flying around as we do every year. Uh, before we get started on this, what do you think the likelihood is we're going to see some major trades? It sounds to me like there'll be some. There's an awful lot. You know, There have been years when all these rumors float around and then absolutely nothing happens. But we've seen a couple of trades already. Uh, there are a lot of teams scrambling. There are some teams still trying to figure out if they're buyers or sellers, uh, and, and, and that will come together for them perhaps in the next week as they determine uh, whether they think they can actually catch up, and so that can change the landscape. Uh, so uh, a, lot of, a lot of scuffling going out there, and it sounds as though there have been some offers uh, out there presented that teams have turned down. Uh, I saw yesterday a report that, uh, that the White Sox turned down a, a King's Ransom for Chris Sale, so... Lots of folks making offers. It just depends on whether those offers become uh, reach the realm of uh, of uh, possibility for teams as they as they proceed to reach that deadline. But I think some things will happen. I do too, and the reason is that uh, unlike years past, more teams already know they're out of it. You know, last year, the year before, teams could entertain the fantasy at least of making it into that wild card game, the play-in game, and so they were a little more reluctant to trade away and, and throw in the towel and do dump trading. But this year, I look at the uh, games behind leaders. You've got Tampa 17 back, Minnesota's 21 and a half back, the White Sox 10 and a half back, the Angels 11 and a half, Oakland 13, uh, Arizona, San Diego, and Colorado all over 13. Um, Milwaukee and Cincinnati both a mile back Atlanta, Philadelphia both a mile back there's lots of teams here that have a lot of incentive to make deals for their studs and, and maybe start reloading for the future Absolutely, in Minnesota with a new general manager that's who's, who's, who's probably going to want to make an impact uh, at this point and, and uh, uh, suddenly prove that he's the guy You know, so I, yeah, I think you're right things, will, things should happen and um, because there are, there are a lot of teams, as you say, that are really out of it at this point. But those teams have some good trading chips, and that's the other thing that, that can make an impact to the deadline. Motivation to trade. It can. Uh, just briefly talking about Minnesota, I know they're in the American League, but uh, they, the, I happened to be watching a game, a Minnesota game the other day because I had some players involved, and uh, the play-by-play -play guys were talking about the replacement of the general manager, and they also said this makes it more likely that Minnesota will be involved in trading because... Uh, and they kind of hated to say it, but these aren't his players. You know, he doesn't have any any um, dog in the fight as to whether those players were good choices or bad choices. He doesn't need to keep them to, to justify his decisions earlier in his career. It's a whole new guy, a whole new regime, which means uh, there's a enhanced possibility that he's going to look at these players and go, I got no connection to these guys. Let's get rid of them. Right. Absolutely. I think you're, you're really right on on that comment because uh, uh, there's no... There's no emotional attachment to these players because he's not the one who brought them in and expected them to do well. I mentioned Milwaukee. Nick is 16 and a half back in the National League Central. Of course, Jonathan Lucroy has been the subject of a lot of trade rumors, but they have some interesting bullpen pieces to get rid of. Uh, uh, Doug Dennis of BaseballHQ.com, the bullpen's columnist, looked at the Milwaukee bullpen situation, and he mentioned uh, Jeremy Jeffress and Will Smith as possible uh, guys who could get traded, which would really upset the apple cart, not only wherever they end up, but also in Milwaukee itself. Yeah, it would indeed. I mean, both... Uh You've got Jeremy Jeffress, and then then there was Will Smith, who 
who uh, is a left-hander, and, and both of them have pitched very, very well. And so uh, if somebody's looking for a closer, Jeffers is certainly a possibility. Uh, he's been doing very well. And then Will Smith has been pitching extremely well, and um, as, and he's a lefty, and that, that's certainly a lefty with a 10.4 dom rate, uh, certainly the kind of guy that you would say, yes, I'd sure like to have him in my pen. Uh, for, in some ways, Will Smith may be the better trading chip. If you look at the stats right now, Will Smith's carrying a 102 BPV, a 1.77 leverage index. Um, so, you know, Will Smith is a guy that really could, I think, bring something in return for, for teams looking for a, an ace lefty out of the pen. They've been using him really heavily the last 30 days. Doug points out his leverage index over two for the period. Uh, now this raises a question. Suppose that the Brewers uh, managed to deal Jeffress or Smith, or especially if they managed to deal them both, which is a possibility. Uh, who who draws into the Milwaukee closer situation? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because if you look at uh, back a month ago, we might have said Tyler Thornburg, but Tyler Thornburg has not pitched so well recently. Uh, although he's been in high leverage, leverage situations all season, um, but has had some command problems over the last 30 days, and that might make teams a little bit leery, make, make, make Milwaukee a little bit leery in terms of whether they want to put him in there. Carlos Torres has been the, the uh, as Doug says, the most consistently solid reliever over the past 30 days. Uh, but again, that's, uh, his, his leverage index is considerably lower than Thornburg, so they've not used him in, in tough situations. So, you know, there are a couple of possibilities in terms of uh, who could take over if Jeffress goes. And uh, it's really hard when you look at these two guys to pick either one of them. Uh, may, is the dark horse here maybe Corey Nabel? A lot of people had him as the preseason favorite to be the closer in Milwaukee. Uh, he was terrible. And maybe do speculators want to take a closer look at him? They, they might. I mean, at this point, uh, Corey Nabel uh, uh, was, was awful, uh, did not... Did not uh, was sent down to start the year uh, and now seems to be back on track but you've got to be kind of careful here we don't have a lot of innings out of him yet just two innings at this point they were good innings uh pitched very very well 13.5 dom in two innings but you've got to see some some uh, track record out of Corey Nabel before you're I, I think going to insert him into a, uh, a really high leverage situation Another bullpen uh, on a also-ran team in Philadelphia where uh, perhaps Jean-Marc Gomez could attract some trade interest. Uh, what do we think about that situation in the Philadelphia pen? Yeah, you know, I think, think Jean-Marc Gomez clearly is somebody who's going to attract, uh, attract some interest. Uh, there are a lot of teams looking for closers, and he's done uh, better, I think, than anyone would have expected at this point. Um, so, so Gomez is really uh, 25 of 27 saves, and, and that's the kind of thing that catches someone's eye if you're looking for, for a closer. The guy, the guy you would expect to inherit, I think, initially is likely to be Hector Neris. Uh, Hector Neris says, uh, we, we've talked about Hector Neris earlier in the season. Hector Neris has been outstanding. At this point in the season, we're looking at a 138 BPV, an 11 DOM, 3.1 control, a uh, 3.07 XERA. So Hector Neris has really gotten the job done. And certainly would be, I think, the guy that uh, that they might look to initially. Uh, David Hernandez is another another possibility. Uh, Hernandez has pitched well, also 108 BPV, uh, 11.3 DOM, 4.0 control. 
Uh, not quite so good on the ERA, or actual ERA of 4.43 at the moment, so perhaps it hasn't looked uh, as strong as Neris in terms of taking over. But there, there are several options in the pen. If I were to speculate on one, I think I'd speculate on Neris at the moment. I'm not that crazy about a 3.1 walk rate for uh, Hector Neris, but everything else looks pretty good. Also, a little bit high on the home run per fly ball rate, but of course that's a small park. It is, yeah, that's a small park, and that could that could influence that. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those, and of course, as we've seen, there have been plenty of save opportunities in Philadelphia, and that's likely to continue through the rest of the season. Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com. Nick, one of our favorite columnists, does the starting pitcher buyer's guide and the batting buyer's guide. And in that batting column uh, recently, he looked at some players who've been fading in their base performance value. Uh, base performance value BPV is a kind of a compendium of all the metrics that we trust when we're looking at batters. And one of the names on his list, a catcher, which is tough, Wellington Castillo of Arizona. You know, we talk about sometimes, a lot of times about a uh uh, how a player's start can influence the rest of the year in terms of our perception of that of that ball player. And mostly we talk about, I think, about slow starts and the fact that uh, with a pitcher, for example, those high April ERAs never disappear. And so uh, in uh, in July, it looks like this guy is awful when he's really picked it up. And But the same thing is true about a hot start in terms of a, a positive start. A hot April for a hitter can linger a long time. And what Stephen points out about Wellington Castillo is his monthly BPVs are... are are dramatically going down, 68, 15, minus 57. Uh, Wellington Castillo had trouble making contact in June, 58% contact rate, uh, very soft contact, 51% hard contact index, uh, 0.19i against right-handers. Uh, a a frontline catcher who could be in for a uh, a real fall over the second half of the season. One of the things I like about the way that uh, Baseball HQ presents player profiles with their stat packages is that they include last seven and last 31 day data. And the reason I think that's interesting is we, you don't have to go dig for it. And so you see a Wellington Castillo and at the, at the top, his line doesn't look half bad. Two, uh, 261 batting average, 10 homers, 30 RBIs. Then you look at the last 31 days, two homers and a 217 batting average. Uh, barely uh, just six RBIs, just three runs scored. When you look at what you, what have you done for me lately is the, is the old question, right? And when you talk about Wellington Castillo, the answer is not too much. Right. I, you know, I, I use those metrics a lot, I, as you do, I'm sure. And uh, it certainly is very useful to look at is this guy hot? Is he absolutely cold? Uh, and and make lineup choices based upon that, and make trading choices based upon that. You want guys who are, who are, uh, especially with a guy like Wellington Castillo, who's, who's not certainly an established star. Uh, you want guys who are um, hot at the moment, uh, not who were hot two months ago. And if you happen to be a Castillo owner and you look at this uh, set of numbers, you might think to yourself, I can play up the fact that he's got the 10 home runs and a 260 batting average and maybe get a, get a sell high on Wellington Castillo because as Stephen points out and as we've discussed, everything looks like it's heading the wrong way. Right, very definitely on Wellington Castillo. He's a guy that I would sell high on if I were an owner. On the other side of the coin, we have Nolan Arenado of the Colorado's fine third baseman. He was covered in a facts and flukes performance validation piece by Greg Pyron. And these facts and flukes things are interesting because they look at players who are having particularly good or particularly bad years. And then the analyst zooms in a little bit and says, let's find out if this performance is for real, whether it's a really good performance or a really bad one. And I think we can safely say that Greg Pyron thinks Nolan Arenado's for real. And in fact, could actually get a little better than he is at the moment. I mean, 
at this point 25 years old and uh, nothing in, in anything that hints that that's going to change at all. In fact, Greg Pyron points out that if you look at Leonardo's numbers, batting average the last, two, last three seasons, 287, 287, 286. So you say, okay, this guy's a 285 hitter, but uh, an elite hard contacts index and his plate skills have actually improved a bit this year. His, uh, so that uh, you begin to wonder, could this guy actually get to 300? Uh, Greg Pyron thinks that there might be a 300 uh, a chance to break 300 eventually for Noron Arenado. Uh, he's proven that the power was not a fluke. Um, Mashes right-handed pitching, uh, and and has always crushed left-handers. An 875 OPS and 22 home runs and 475 lifetime at bats against left-handers. So, you know, here's a guy that Greg says is, uh, yep, he wasn't a fluke last year, uh, and uh, really looks as though he's going to solidify himself as one of the best third basemen in the game. And what's interesting, you mentioned this batting average kind of fluky thing, 287, 287, 287 in 2014, 15, and 16. Look at the expected batting average a few columns over, and it's uh, it's 300 in 2014, up to 307 last year, still at 291 this year. So he's full value for what he's at, and as you said, there seems to be some room to grow here. And uh, a lot of his trends, unlike uh, Wellington Castillo's, are headed in the right direction. Right, very definitely. And so that this is a guy that you want to you want to roster, although you're not going to get him cheap at this point in his career. No, but sometimes Nick in fantasy baseball, when you're looking at what to do for your roster, you're kind of targeting guys in the league or guys who might be available next year, uh, guys who might be uh, acquirable in trade this year because certain guys are looking for prospects and so forth, and it might cost you a king's ransom, as you say. But Nolan Arenado might be one of those guys that's worth it, especially since third base is a relatively difficult spot to fill these days. Right, very definitely. He's a guy that, uh, that you might, uh, might get in the right situation, if, especially if someone is looking for prospects and, uh, in, a, uh, uh, in a dynasty league and wants, wants to build and doesn't have a whole lot to build around. He's the kind of guy that uh, a package of prospects might fetch. Here's a question for you. Would you include Alex Bregman in a trade for Nolan Arenado? I know it's kind of a vacuum, but if that, if that was the kind of deal, would you be willing to give up on Bregman to get uh, Arenado at this point? Yeah, I think I would. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I love Alex Bregman. I, Alex Bregman played at LSU, and I think he's going to be a great, great ball player. But Nolan Arenado has already proven that he can perform at the major league level, and he plays in Colorado. And so uh, I think that there's, there's uh, something to that. So if, I, if somebody offered me a trade of, uh, of Arenado straight up for Bregman, I think I'd jump on it. Yeah, I would too. I don't think anybody's going to make you that offer. They're going to want more than Bregman, but uh, Bregman's a, a blue chipper, that's for sure. But I think uh, Nolan Arenado is now the gold standard. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. Great talking with you, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over to the American League we go, and BaseballHQ.com director of news and analysis and speculator columnist Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here, as always. We're a little more than a week away from the trading deadline. Talked about this with uh, Harold Nichols just a moment ago in the National League Market Watch. What's your impression of what we can expect to see with these last uh, eight or nine days before we hit the deadline? Well, you know, frankly, I'm a little I'm a little bit surprised that more hasn't gone down. I mean, I know there's no pitching market, but the hitting market hasn't developed yet. Uh, I expect there to be a lot of last-minute activity. I'm not sure in total there's going to be as much activity as in previous years just because 
of what teams are asking for pitching. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see who cracks first, the buyers and the sellers in, in a lot of these instances. And a lot of it uh, depends on what the buyers have to offer back. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Texas Rangers in a minute. They have a really stacked minor league system and they desperately need pitching. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them um, being pretty aggressive in the market because uh, they're, they're looking over their shoulders at Houston right now. And of course, Houston's got a couple of new bullets in the chambers here. They've signed Yulieski Guriel to a six-year deal. And they also have Alex Bregman, uh, who may be called up as by the time people hear this podcast, in fact. So, uh, Houston's really spooling up. They're, they're improving across the board offensively with these two guys once they get both get called up, but they're creating an awful lot of roster, um, shuffling to go on. So you've covered this for baseballhq.com, Jock. How does this all shake out with Bregman, Guriel, Luis Valbuena? We got, um, all kinds of guys in Houston that are going to be looking at playing time reductions. Yeah, the Guriel signing is really interesting uh, um, because of Bregman's emergence. I mean, both both of them are projected to play uh, third base, or at least were in, in Houston. Uh, we've covered Bregman a few times here, and you know his story. You know how much I like him. I think he's one of the better bets for rookies for immediate uh, major league success. And Guriel is expected expected to be or is considered to be just as complete and more and, and even a more experienced hitter obviously just not at the major league level now he's 32 years old so probably a tad past his prime and there's no guarantee of immediate uh, success particularly given the cultural shock he's probably going to experience as a Cuban import but if either and, and particularly if both of these uh, names are successful when they arrive and I expect that to be sometime in early mid-August there's going to be plenty of playing time losers in uh, Houston, namely uh, A.J. Reed, Evan Gaddis at D.H., Marwin Gonzalez, and probably Carlos Gomez in the outfield. If Gomez loses time, that is going to be quite a story across fantasy baseball. Uh, do you think any of these guys could be on the trading block? Um, yeah, absolutely. In fact, Gomez is one of those names, I think. Um, um, and, and, and there might be another name or two in the uh, in the Houston outfield. Interestingly enough, um, um, just last night before we did the podcast, A.J. Reed was finally demoted. He'd been struggling for a while. They, they gave him about 45 at-bats, um, and they called up Preston Tucker, who was a left-handed hitter who had very good success in Houston last year. He struggled at the beginning of, the, this, of this year before he was demoted. Um, I think uh, Preston Tucker is is probably um, um, uh, it, it being given a, a showcase here because I'm not sure they need him given all the other names they have. The other thing Tucker's doing is he's his promotion is buying time for Bregman, who's now getting left field at bats in uh, at, in Triple uh, A Fresno in Tucker's old spot. So that is kind of giving you an idea of what Houston's thinking is here. Well, when I look at it, it looks to me like maybe they're hoping that somebody steps up to play left field. Uh, clearly, they're not uh, totally satisfied with Colby Rasmus, who hits some home runs, hasn't hit many lately, hasn't been much good in any way other than that. Could they be looking at maybe hoping that Tucker plays left field for them, and then they could put in uh, uh, the Bregman-Guriel combo at the corners in the infield? I mean, Bregman is... Bregman's not going to shove uh, Carlos Correa out of shortstop, even though Bregman's a shortstop by trade. But Valbuena, good, not great, you know, and and uh, Bregman could move over from short to third like uh, Cal Ripken did, like Manny Machado did. 
all of a sudden you've got a third baseman who can play and hit, and then Gurriel can come over and play first base, which is the easiest position on the field. Well, that's the fascinating here. Houston has a lot of roster flexibility. Now, the one thing I, I will disagree with your, your last uh, scenario there is, and that is that Luis Valbuena has been one of the best hitters in the Astro uh, lineup for the past two months, and he's at third base. So if they bring up those two, he's going to have to move somewhere, and it's probably going to be first base, at least against right-handers. And he's even been hitting left-handers lately. So with Houston in the race, it's really going to depend on who's hot and who's not, and they have a lot of options. And to me, Texas should be terrified right now. Texas has many reasons to be terrified. Uh, they had a 10-game lead not that long ago. That lead is now down to three games. They're under 500 for the last week, 15 days and 30 days separately. And so uh, they're really losing ground quickly. And now they've uh, had some uh, bad news on the injury front. Prince Fielder looks like he could be done for the year. Not that big of a loss considering how poorly he was hitting. But Shinsu Chu had been finally back from the DL, had been hitting fairly well. Now he's got some kind of lower back problem and he's back in the disabled list. Can the Rangers do anything with all of these injuries, especially considering how poor their pitching is? Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. The um, the DLing of Fielder would actually seem to help the Rangers. Uh, Fielder had been playing better lately, but Jerickson Profar was only getting part-time at bats maybe three, four times a week, and he's been playing really well for Texas. Uh, he's projected to, uh, to get the at-bats that Fielder is vacating. Um, but what's interesting about that is Profar and Joey Gallo were the two big names that are reportedly in demand by other clubs engaged with Texas to talk about front-line front pitching, which now suggests that Profar is off the table right now. And we talk about pitching more than any contender in either league, in my opinion. Uh, the, the Rangers need pitching desperately, as, as you've noted here in your intro and, and in my uh, recent playing time tomorrow columns the rangers have lost something like 13 of their last 17 games and the staff era for the month of july has been over seven runs a game which is easily the worst in baseball the problems are both in the rotation and pen uh, they just got swept three games here in anaheim that i watched and the angels took them out early in all three of the games uh, this tells me that the rangers are going to be forced into some sort of trade action over the next 10 days Otherwise, I seriously don't even think they make the playoffs, let alone make a deep run. Um, and with with the lack of pitching available, uh, it'll be interesting to see what they have to give up. It will. They have a lot of options. You mentioned Joey Gallo. There's other fine players in high and, and in the medium levels of the Texas uh uh, farm system. I'm curious about your what you say about uh, Jerickson Profar being off the table. They're going to have to give up something to get the kind of pitching they really desperately need. They need an ace. They need an ace or a really, really good number two to, to uh, help them fend off the Astros' charge. And uh, I can't see that they would turn down Jerickson Profar, especially when Baltimore needs pitching. Boston needs pitching, just to name two. And they they all aspire to playoff success, which means that whoever gets whatever frontline starting pitching is available is going to be able to command a pretty hefty price. Do you think that, that Texas can afford to be that uh, demanding or, or unwilling to part with uh, Jerickson Profar, considering their need? No, not if an ace is available and not if they want to make the playoffs. I think the problem is that first part, uh, who is available? I mean, the reports that I'm hearing is that I mean, the one name that, that, that seems to be obvious is Julio Tehran, but the Braves keep insisting that he's off the table. We don't know how much of a ploy that is. But of the names that they are talking about, uh, 
uh, Tampa Bay. Um, they're talking about Jake Odorizzi. Odorizzi is a is a, uh, a a number three guy, you know, in the rotation. Would they trade Profar? Maybe for that. I mean, it's it's a fascinating situation right now. And of course, it does have fantasy implications, uh, especially in single league formats where there could be players changing leagues. And it uh, looks like there's enough fit across the leagues in certain instances to make that kind of a possibility. Uh, moving off of the trade wire for a moment, back to the DL, uh, Nick Tropiano of the Angels has become the third pitcher on the team this year behind Garrett Richards and Andrew Heaney to tear his ulnar collateral ligament. He's facing Tommy John surgery. What does this mean for the Angels? And does this affect anything the Angels might be willing to do in the trade market? Yeah, I think it does. In terms of the trade ramifications, reportedly there's been a ton of interest in Matt Shoemaker, who's obviously been one of the AL's very best starting pitchers for the past two months. But even though the Angels aren't contending and are an organization in desperate need of a minor league talent infusion, Right now, their 2017 pitching staff looks bleaker than ever, particularly, uh, as, as you noted, with uh, with both uh, Garrett Richards, uh, doubtful, and Andrew Heaney. He's decided to go under uh, undergo Tommy John surgery. He's going to be out the entire year. Um, so for an organization that still has dreams and many would say delusions of reloading and competing in 2017, it would likely take a ridiculous offer for them to move um, Shoemaker. Uh, in terms of who replaces him, this is where it suddenly gets interesting for fantasy owners. Uh, not sure if you've been watching the minors lately, but Tyler Skaggs has had two very good outings in a row, and and they've and he's upped his his innings count. He went seven innings in one outing, almost six in the other. He struck out 26 hitters. He's posted a 26 to three strikeout to walk ratio in the 13 innings of his last two games, and he's given up no earned runs. So I'm not sure if his call up is imminent. They could. Um, they could uh, add uh, Juli Chassin back to the rotation. But Tyler Skaggs is probably going to be coming up uh, very soon in August, at least uh, at the latest. Um, and I think he can help some fantasy owners. Oh, believe me, uh, I've been paying attention to Scott Tyler Skaggs in the minor leagues. It's uh, unfortunately become quite a story, so it's a little harder to peel him away from a team that might not be paying attention because you'd practically have to be willfully blind not to have heard about Tyler Skaggs' last two starts in the minors. Uh, up in Seattle, they've been making some trades and player moves, most of them of the minor variety. They basically gave Mike Montgomery a sort of second-rate pitcher to the Cubs, got back a first baseman by the name of Dan Vogelback not too likely to replace Anthony Rizzo anytime soon. They did activate King Felix Hernandez, but uh, he seems to be on the downside of his career. They recalled Mike Zanino to come up and hit 195. What do all these moves tell us about what Seattle is doing? And again, are there any trade ramifications? Yeah, well, to me, the fact that Seattle made this particular trade move following a disappointing first game back from Felix tells me they've, that they've obviously become sellers. Uh, they, they started out very well this season. They were in first place for probably the first month and a half, two months. But Felix obviously isn't what he is right now, despite the 3.23 ERA, or at least he's, he's not what he was, I should say. Montgomery had actually pitched well for Seattle. I agree that he's, uh, he's really kind of a reliever, uh, swingman type type pitcher, but he'd done well in Seattle, and this tells you where the pitching market is. Um, Seattle acquired another DH first baseman uh, where they're currently well-stocked, and what that tells me is they're prepping for 2017, and probably that they'll likely give a free agent-to-be uh, and current DH first baseman, Adam Lind, they'll give him away to whoever wants him right now for next to nothing. 
in Oakland, the A's demoted Billy Burns and called up hot-hitting rookie Ryan Healy, whom we discussed here last week after the Futures game. Two questions for you, Jock. First, who replaces Burns at playing center field for the A's? Well, right now, uh, it's probably going to be Jake, Jake Smolinski. In fact, it is Jake Smolinski and Coco Crisp replacing Burns. Uh, Smolinski's actually done pretty well. He's hit for a high rate of contact, uh, um, but he's, his uh, uh, historical uh batting average against right-handed pitching and uh, he, he's not particularly fast I'm not sure how good he is on defense makes me think he's just a placeholder um, crisp is uh, is going to get some bats uh, Oakland is hoping beyond hope that maybe they can intrigue some contender uh, with crisp as a bat off the bench I'm not sure that's going to happen um, I think Burns will be back in center field I think they needed to jump start him uh, Burns has always been one of those guys who will provide decent defense in in center and uh and he, his contact rate is very good. Uh, he just doesn't hit with enough authority. What they hope is that his speed is going to help him get on um, and steal some bases. He hasn't had a lot of hit rate luck this year, so part of this is going to be luck with uh, with Billy Burns. He'll be back in August and September. Fantasy owners needing stolen bases should probably watch that. Um, Healy actually, I mean, obviously it's something that, that I called, uh, I think, last week. I thought he was going to be up. I didn't realize he'd be up this quickly. Um, They've actually named him as the regular third baseman now, and he's so far in the early going. He's six for twenty-four. He has a three-run uh, homer. He's he's actually won a game with a hit. Uh, he doesn't look overmatched right now. It's a little too early to tell, but Healy is going to get playing time uh, to, to prove himself. And he was one of the hottest hitting uh, uh, prospects in the minor leagues uh, this year. Um, I would be very interested in Ryan Healy if I was in a deeper league and uh, and and needed a third baseman. Yeah, I took a long look at him when he came up uh, in my American League tout situation. I've got second best FAB total, and I just thought I don't I don't know that uh, he he's a relatively untried commodity still. I was I'm hoping for something more tangible coming across than. Uh, than what Ryan Healy offers as far as a fab pickup. And having said that, I'd like to go back to Billy Burns. Uh, isn't it surprising to you that a guy with his speed has such a poor hit rate? Um, yeah, it is, except that if you look at the fact that he has pretty much no power, look at his power metrics right now. They're off the charts uh, in a bad way. And the fact that he makes such soft contact, you're talking about a guy who's really going to be dependent on hit rate. And I, what I was really surprised at is that he hit, uh, I, I think, somewhere around 290 last year. Um, his expected batting average is more around 250, 260. I think that's what we're going to get from him uh, most of the time. Is it possible that what they're trying to do, sending him to the minors, is to get him some coaching to take better advantage of the fact that he can run and and try to cut down on fly balls? I mean, the guy, the, he's a 54% ground ball guy this year, which is not bad, but 27% fly balls. Could, is there some possibility that he could trade in at least some of those fly balls, maybe bunt a little more often, use his speed to greater effect than he does by hitting cans of corn into the outfield? Even at 27%, I bet you nine-tenths of those 27% are all outs. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, and you're right. If he can get the coaching that would help him just uh, hit, allow him to hit more ground balls, the more ground balls he uh, he hits, obviously, uh, he's going to have a better chance of getting on base because hitting it in the air is not going to do it for Billy Burns. And when we talk about his hit rate, of course, uh, uh, last year 34%, this year 26 which the 34% seems more like a guy with his speed. And uh, this year so far, even uh, even if he's not doing anything different batting profile-wise, his expected batting average is, what, 30, 35 points ahead of his real batting average. So it looks like maybe there's some hope there. 
a lot of people will be giving up on Billy Burns. Would you acquire him? Um, I would if I need stolen bases. I still don't think he's going to retrace his entire batting average from last year. I don't think he's a 290 hitter. I think he's more of a 260 hitter. Um, maybe, I mean, obviously it all depends on luck. If he has another year like like he did in 2015, maybe he does retrace. But uh, um, if I need stolen bases, I'd absolutely be looking at Billy Burns. Something else that maybe they can try to get him to do is take a few more walks. His walk rate down to 4% this year, which is which is really poor and again not a not the kind of thing that a hitter like him needs to be doing yeah absolutely a uh, walk rate's really important for a leadoff guy like him and for a base dealer like him he can really maximize his value to a team by getting on base a lot and stealing a lot of bases and scoring a lot of runs uh, in fact that's pretty much his uh, sole source of value as you said he's never going to be a home run hitter he's not going to be ricky henderson with the legs or especially with the bat uh, jock thanks a million for helping us out again we'll talk to you again uh, in two weeks time because you're taking some time away yes i am uh going to head to Belize uh, and snorkel that uh, barrier reef, so I'm looking forward to that. Well, it sounds like a great time. Hope you enjoy yourself and uh, stay safe, and we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks' time. Will do, BD. Thanks. Jock Thompson is the director of news and analysis, an analyst himself, and a speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And, of course, he covers player news from the American League right here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. We'll take a quick break here, then we'll be back with Corey Schwartz, the Statmaster from MLB.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy, co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 3rd through 6th in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all of the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2017's impact rookies from your own front row seat. To get the details and to register, visit BaseballHQ.com and click on the giant First Pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. First Pitch Arizona. Come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined once again by Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Stats at MLB.com and MLB Advanced Media. Corey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate you having me on again. Oh, it's my pleasure indeed. Uh, usually I start off by asking our uh, expert guests where their teams are in their various experts leagues, but I really do want to focus on Tout Mixed because you're in the lead. Last week I talked with Mike Podhorzer. He's in last place in our uh, American League Tout, and I asked him, what's it like being in last place? Because we don't talk about that often enough, and you have quite the opposite problem. You're leading Tout Mix by a point and a half, I think. So let's start by asking, what really has gone right for your team so far? You know, it's funny. I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, uh, like I'm complaining about my problems being in first place, but I look up and down my roster, and I see a lot of areas where I think still things could still be a lot better. Um, I think the key for me really has been that, you know, a couple of players have, have exceeded what I thought of them. The Seeger brothers, uh, Kenley Jansen has really been a great bullpen anchor. But I think the key for my team really has been that I haven't had any dead spots or any dead weight. Um, you know, even my weakest offensive spot has been contributing in one category or another. 
Um, you know, I haven't had any pitchers who've really dragged me down that badly. And I built up a big lead in saves early on, and that has enabled me to make a lot of trades out of my bullpen to try and shore up other areas. So it's a long season. Uh, you know, you always look for areas where you can improve your team, but um, I'd certainly rather be in first place than last. No offense to Mike. Yeah, and and uh, in Mike's case, a lot of it was just injury-related. You know, you, you plan very carefully at draft, and you get the guys you think are going to be good, and probably they would be good, except they get hurt, and they start missing time, and uh, and uh, there's just no overcoming three or four s- senior guys on your team having injuries because you fall behind in the counting stats, and unlike the ratios, you can never make that up. Right, right, and, you know, especially in in, in mixed leagues, deep mixed leagues, Really, in any league, it's tough to go out on the waiver wire and find an impact player it, you know, in mid-late July, unless it's a closer who just got the job because of an injury or something like that. You know, to find a bat who's going to be a difference maker at this point is almost impossible to do without making a trade. On the other hand, uh, in a single league format, you can also bide your time with your fab budget and hope that somebody comes over from the other league who could be an impact player. And indeed, this year, there's been a lot of talk about that because of the stratification in the real baseball standings, where we have quite a few more teams than usual who look like they're out of it and must know that they're out of it, and quite a few less teams who are uh, battling for those playoff spots. So there's going to be some pretty intense activity around the trade deadline, or so we hope. Yeah, and you know, one of the biggest names that's being mentioned as a trade chip right now is Jonathan Lucroy. You know, he's not an elite bat in and of him in and of itself in terms of his offensive performance, but he's an elite offensive catcher. So imagine Jonathan Lucroy getting traded to uh, you know, to somebody in the NL. That's probably the best player that would be available in free agent bidding in an NL league because the difference between a replacement level catcher and Jonathan Lucroy is massive. Uh so that's a big chip that that we could see moving in the next week. And indeed, I don't know if this is happening in your league, but we're already seeing some jockeying for position in the fab rankings. I just made a trade to pick up $10 so I could vault over the guy in front of me. It was a fairly meaningless uh, deal for the guy with whom I traded, except that he also wanted me to vault over that particular guy. But uh, have you seen a lot of that in your league where guys are are including fab dollars in their trading uh, aspirations because they want to maneuver for position in the the, uh, latter half of the season? I, I don't know if it's so much maneuvering for position as maintaining flexibility. Um, I'm one that tends to spend my fab money very early because I think the, the sooner you can get a player who will help you, the better off you'll be in the long run. Um, but as a result of that, every trade I made, I try, and get a, uh, I try and get a little fab thrown in to maintain flexibility throughout. So right now I think I've got, you know, just looking at it quickly, four or five teams with less money than I have. But it's really not who's ahead of me or who's behind me. It's such that if I feel the need to make a big bid here or there, I still have a little bit of flexibility to do that. And of course, teams in your league are not so uh, eager to have big fab balances at the trade deadline because there's no advantage to guys switching leagues because you're playing in both leagues. You mentioned earlier that you're never resting when you look at yourself in first place, especially in a tight in a tight race like you have going on. What's your process for thinking about how you have to go about protecting the lead that you have? Really, there are two things you do. Number one, you have to look at the individual categories in your league and figure out, you know, I have X number of points in each category, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stay there. I'm going to move up or down based on the performance of my team relative to everybody else. So I try and look at the categories where I'm vulnerable, frankly, as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to figure out where I can gain. I'm always trying to protect the points I have, uh, particularly once I'm in first place. Uh, and then you look at your roster and figure out, okay, like right now in Tout Mixed, I need to move up in home runs. So I'm looking at my roster thinking, is there any roster spot where I can move in a little bit more power without hurting myself anywhere else? 
um, and I'm trying to make another deal right now to add a little bit more thump to my lineup, even if it's just a marginal gain of a couple of home runs, you know, that's potentially the kind of thing that's worth two or three points down the road uh, in the season, and it's the difference between first and second place sometimes. That's an interesting point you make that you uh, mentioned earlier, that you built up a pretty good position in saves and then started dealing some of those saves off. Do you deal them tactically to teams that can help you out by going by your opponents in the category? Not early in the season. You know, early in the season, my focus is strictly on what can I do to improve my team and, you know, who could use bullpen. This time of year, I am looking a little bit more in the categories, and and one of the trades I'm talking about right now does have some of that aspect in mind that um, it's less about helping someone else move up points Whereas I'm trying to help facilitate a trade so someone who's closing in on me and saves will trade off one of his extra closers to someone else. So it's a three-way trade that, yeah, I think I can help my team, but I can weaken a team that's closing in on me in a category and help myself that way as well. Of course, you also have to be mindful that that guy can also make deals to shore himself up in the category or the guy you trade with. This happened to me a couple of years ago in Tout Mixed. I made a couple of deals to shore up my categories and tactically put the guys that I was trading away onto teams that could help me and uh, those teams accepted my guys and then immediately turned around and traded them to somebody else so right, uh, yeah you know Tout Mixed is a 15 team league I can't control what the other 14 teams are doing so my focus always has to be on first and foremost what can I do to improve my team protect the points I have and gain incremental points elsewhere that always has to be the focus you spend too much time worrying about someone else's team you take your eye off the ball and lose focus on what matters most, which is your own team. Right, and then the the other thing you can do, I guess, is just hold off on your trades till the very last minute before your own league's trading deadline so that they can't follow up and get rid of the guys you have. Corey, you, you mentioned that you're looking to protect your category positions. Is that because the race is so tight? You're a point and a half up on your second place guy, and there's three other guys within seven and a half. So conceivably, you could easily be bouncing from first to fifth and back again in a given stretch of time. Does the sheer closeness of the race affect how you think about what you need to do? Or would you be doing the same thing if you were 12 points clear and, and nobody else was close? Yeah, I think the focus always has to be on protecting the points you have once you get into the lead because that forces the other teams to come and get you. You know, that's really the thing you want to do. I mean, in, in as much as you can control what your players do, which you can't, you need other teams to come and get you. You don't want to make the mistake where you trade away a player and, and forfeit your too many points in one category or another and make it easier for the other teams to come and get you. So my focus is always on securing my position wherever I can and then dealing from depth to shore up other positions uh, and maybe gain a couple of points here and there. So right now, uh, I had an okay night last night. There was some flip-flopping of the other teams. I'm up on Zach Steinhorn and Joe Pisapia by five points each. I'm up 109 to 104 over the two of them. You know, I'm looking at each category where how can I make sure that when I wake up tomorrow morning, I don't have any less than 109 points. And how much attention do you pay to what they're doing, those the guys who are sort of within hailing distance of you? Are you monitoring their trade activity, their free agent activity, to see if they're positioning themselves to make a run at you in a category and then thinking about how to offset what they do by doing something yourself, or are you just managing your own team for your own purpose? Well, you know, to a certain extent. You try and keep tabs on what everybody is doing in the league because that will affect where points are going. You know, for example, Joe is, is very low in saves right now, but he's really made some moves to shore up his bullpen. So I know he's going to be making a run in that category and picking up some points. Respectfully to everybody involved in Tout Wars, though, the one guy you always have to be watching is Fred Zinke. Uh, you know, he's won the league three times in five years and finished second the other two years. I mean, that's that's as good a run as you're going to see by any owner in any league anywhere. Um, 
So while I don't necessarily feel like I have to do something to counter what Fred is doing, I definitely want to keep an eye on what he's doing because, you know, on day one, he is the team to beat, and I think he's the team to beat no matter where he is in the standings until the last day of the season. And Fred is in the top five, one of the guys chasing you. And this is something that I find really interesting, and I bet my listeners are going to find this interesting as well. You made a trade with Fred, even though you guys are uh, sort of mortal enemies in the standings at this point. You sent Rugnet Odor, Gregory Polanco, and Michael Fulmer to Fred. You got back Jason Kipnis, Melvin Upton, and 25 fab dollars, true to your uh, idea that you always want to keep adding fab. It's the equivalent of about $2.5 in a $100 budget because uh, Tout uses a $1,000 budget. What, what was your thinking in making a deal with such a close competitor and such a wily veteran and a deal that may actually help him, or at least he thinks it does? Well, the first thing is I have to make a deal that helps me, and I feel this does. You know, one of the, one of the reasons you trade with Fred is because Fred is one of the teams in the league who's always willing to make deals, and he's always willing to put any, any name on the table. Um, so it's a little bit of a, a convenience matter, too. But... Um, there was a lot that went into this. I mean, if you don't mind me going on a, a sort of a long-winded explanation, I can I can let you know how this deal came about. I think it's, you know, as I sort of talk through it, it makes a lot of sense to me, even if it doesn't necessarily look that way, you know, on paper. Um, so with your blessing, I'll go for it. Absolutely. That uh, okay. we've, got, we've got hours to fill here. Right, yeah. I might kill a segment later on down, you know, set, you know G block or whatever on your, on your show, but, uh, you know, for this one. So basically, in looking at the categories... I'm doing okay in steals, but it's a very vulnerable category. The steals category is very tight. Uh, my number one stolen base guy is Josh Harrison, who's really been slumping badly lately. So I knew I wanted to add some team speed. Um, I had traded B.J. Upton to Fred much earlier in the season in a roundabout way that brought me uh, Will Myers, so I don't feel too bad about that. But I always kind of felt like I wanted to have Upton back on my team. I don't know how it came about exactly that Fred and I started talking. Probably he reached out and asked if I wanted to trade, and the answer is always yes. Um, Immediately, I targeted in on Upton because of, you know, potentially getting a big stolen base guy to help me out in that regard. But the problem with Upton is his low OBP. Since April and early May, he hasn't been walking that much, and his OBP is dropping. So I needed to counteract that because the OBP category is very tight. We use OBP instead of average in, in, in mixed auction. So we were talking about players, how we might work this out. I said, I'm interested in Upton. But I want to get Jason Kipnis as well because I want to shore up my middle infield a little bit. He's a higher OBP guy. Uh, and then he, set, he, Fred, asked for Gregory Polanco. Now, again, backtrack a little bit. I had gotten Gregory Polanco about a month ago in a deal with Nando DeFino in which the hitter I gave up was Cole Calhoun because I figured, all right, between Calhoun and Polanco, that'll give me a little bit of a bump in speed and I should be good. Polanco hasn't been running. Now with the bad hamstring, and playing for an organization that is very smart, uh, you know, a very analytic-minded organization, Polanco's not a high-percentage stolen base guy to begin with. I think between that and the sore hamstring, I don't see him running a lot the rest of the way. So as we kind of pieced this together, he wanted Polanco. Those are the two guys I was interested in. And finally, I realized that if I was going to get back Kipnis and Upton, I had to deal Rugnet Odor. Um, I love Odor's stats in a 5x5 five five league. He's incredibly valuable, but in, a, in this format, he's a very, very poor OBP guy, even worse than Upton. So I realized that those two offensive players going in each direction would probably result in probably a net zero in counting numbers for both of us, you know, give or take a little bit here or there, but I gained considerably in steals by essentially trading a guy who's not going to run an Odor. Kipnis cancels out uh, Odor, and I think Upton will get a lot more than Polanco. So that was my thinking there. Finally, Fred was looking for a little something extra. We, you know, we were talking about how to balance this out. 
he's he punted saves early on. I'm not exactly sure why he did so early, but he did. Um, he asked about Michael Fulmer, and as great as Fulmer has been since I picked him up, I'm worried he does have a little bit of a regression risk. Uh, I think the Tigers will start cutting back his innings pretty soon. And because Fred is already carrying so many starters, I figured the marginal value of Fulmer for him was much less than it would be to some other to some other owner in the league, which is why I was a little bit more willing to include him in the trade. So we went back and forth a little bit. Um, the way I look at it ultimately is that I gave up Fulmer to get a bunch of steals. I got 25 bucks in Fab thrown back in. I picked up Kendall Graveman to fill Fulmer's roster spot, and for one start he pitched as well as Fulmer has. So that was sort of how the whole deal came about, the idea being that I could move up in steals and not hurt myself anywhere else, and you know now we'll see. <laughs> So that's how the whole thing happened. It sounds like a, a very long and complicated process. About how how long was it in, in days or hours? Uh, a couple of days. Fred is resp- very responsive over email. Um, you know, we went back and forth on it a little bit. You know, he asked me for some different players than Odor because he didn't want to take the OBP risk either. But once we, you know, he went back and crunched the numbers and came to the same conclusion that I did, that he was basically trading OBP for another good starting pitcher. Um, you know, we both kind of arrived at the same math, if you will, um, of how the trade would net out. And I think it was maybe Saturday, Saturday night, uh, we were trading some emails and I woke up Sunday morning and he had sent me an email or maybe even it was Monday, but because we had a night game, so we had time uh, to make another deal. He sent me an email on Monday saying, all right, I'm in, let's do it. Um, and then because the first game was at seven o'clock, we kicked around some other ideas of maybe expanding it into a three-way trade. Um, that didn't pan out. So we made the trade and, and off we go. One thing he benefits by getting Michael Fulmer, you said he had a lot of starting pitchers, was uh, that he now maybe has a surplus of starters, and he, which he can turn around and then wheel for something else. Uh, Fred's nothing if not a wheeler, that's for sure. I mean, he's constantly on the move. Was that a concern of yours, that by giving him Fulmer, that you were creating another future opportunity for him to trade, which is, as I say, it's something you have to think about with Fred that you often don't have to think about with other trading partners because they trade relatively infrequently. You think, okay, I gave Michael Fulmer, he'll be on full, he'll be on his roster for the rest of the year. With with Fred Zinke, not so much. Yeah, frankly, it, it never crossed crossed my mind for a second because the reality is Fred will trade any player at any time if he can get a player back that he thinks will make his team better. Um, if you look at the the stats uh, on the OnRoto site that we use for Tout Wars, it shows who your current roster is with their stats and then underneath that it shows the stats for every other player you've had over the course of the year fred has had twice as many players who are on his roster hitters and pitchers as who are on his roster right now so you know to look at where it says you know uh, team team stats only there are very few players that he drafted that are still on his roster you know it's always a living thing with him uh so you make a deal with fred and you hope it improves your team and then you wait to see what his next deal is going to be because it's coming soon. We have two months, about 70 games left to, to go for each team. What's your single biggest concern in protecting your lead down the stretch? Well, a lot of categories are vulnerable. I've really been slipping in the power categories coming out of the break. And as I look at it, uh, you know, I always think about in terms of where could I be tomorrow, best case or worst case scenario. Uh, and I still have a tremendous risk in the, you know, the, the power categories, particularly homers and RBIs. So um, I recognize that some of that is the ebb and flow of the season. Um, I have some hitters who had some great hot streaks. I have some guys who are cold right now. But I think I have pretty good team power overall. Um, I would just like to shore up one or two more spots and and gain a couple of marginal home runs and RBIs if I can. So uh, that's what I'm working on right now, and hopefully I can make another deal or two and and, uh, try and get those little incremental gains. 
You mentioned that some of your players went on hot streaks. Uh, sometimes they go on cold streaks. How responsive are you to those to those streaks? Uh, I've always thought, based on some research I've done for BaseballHQ.com, that on an individual player basis, we expect ebbs and flows in home run rate, RBI rate, batting average in particular, but that over the full length of a season, uh, and even more in the full length of a career, these things all even out. But I always kind of expect, and I don't know if there's any reason to do this, I always expect that the highs of player A will be offset by the lows of player B in, in any particular period. And I'm always a little bit surprised when my whole team goes in the tank for two weeks offensively. And I wonder, how do you react when you're, if your team, or ha, I don't know, has your team had a team-wide power slump during this season? And how do you respond? Yeah, I, I think you have to think about it in terms of a pyramid. You know, the guys at the top of the pyramid, your big-time home run, run hitters, you know, your most expensive auction players, your number one round draft pick, those are the guys you're just going to put in there, set and forget, and see what the numbers look like at the end of the season. So my best power hitter is John Carlos Stanton, and he's going to be in my lineup for all 26 weeks as long as he's healthy. And I'll hope that at the end of the season, the numbers I expected of him will be there. Um, obviously, he's had very much of an up-and-down season. Um, but he's still on pace for, you know, upper 30s in home runs. He could make a run at 40, and I'll be very happy with that, even if it's a little bit of a bumpy road getting there. Um, on the other hand, you know, when you look down at, you know, your middle infielder, your utility guy, your fifth outfielder, that's when I sort of tinker around at the margins. I'll look at, um, uh, you know, where the team is playing, who's hot, who's not, things of that nature. So, for example, this week I put Kevin Kiermeyer in because the, the Rays had three games in Coors Field, uh, thinking I might luck into a home run as a result of that. I benched Brett Lowry. Um, you know, again, I have roster flexibility. I benched Lowry. He hit a home run. All right, that one didn't work out. But ultimately, these aren't guys that I'm going to have in my roster, in my lineup, all 26 weeks. And ultimately, you try and you know, you try and use the information you have. You try and look at the schedule and make the best decisions you can, and, and hope for the best. We can't control what the players do. All we can all we can do is look at the information and try and make the best decisions we can based on the information we have. Based on what you say, are you a big uh, advocate of streaming your starting pitchers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's pretty much my tried-and-true strategy in, in every league going back for years and years and years. A little bit different this year in Tout Wars. Um, I drafted you, Darvish, for 10 bucks, which I thought was a great discount. Uh, and then I made a trade for Garrett Cole, which unfortunately was right before he got hurt, but now he's back, so that's done. So with Darvish and Cole, I think for the first time in a long time, I have two sort of anchor starters that I can, that I can put in there and leave alone. And then I can sort of tinker around with the rest. So I have some guys who, you know, some guys who've been surprises, like Junior Guerra. I had Michael Fulmer. Um, I have some guys who I think have been a little bit disappointing, like Gio Gonzalez and Jake Odorizzi. As you said, I'm hoping that they balance out a little bit and give me a solid group I can work with going forward uh, to back up the one-two of Darvish and Cole. Well, uh, it sounds like you're really working it. I wish you the best of luck. I know Fred's a tough competitor. I know uh, all your all the guys in that league are tough competitors. So you have your work cut out for you. Yeah, absolutely. It's and it's a fun league. You know, I really like everybody in this league. Uh, it's easy to talk trade with people. It's fun to talk baseball. So uh, I hope I win. Uh, but either way, I'm having a good time. And that's the point. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz from MLB.com, Major League Baseball Advanced Media. And Corey, as much as anyone, you must be monitoring how the flood of data from the new applications like StatCast are being used out there in the real world, not just by your people, but by others, the teams themselves. What uses or applications of StatCast data have you seen lately that have really interested you that, you've, that you're excited by? Well, you know, you're seeing a lot of interesting work done uh, using all of the hitting data, you know, the exit velocity, exit um, launch angle, trying to figure out what is the optimal 
um, combination for home runs, for base hits, for batting average. It's really cool stuff. Some of the things we're working on in-house, um, data that hasn't necessarily made its way out to the public yet, we're really starting to look a lot at fielding, um, trying to figure out the difference between outfielders, what contributes to a ball being caught versus a ball falling in for a hit. Um, we're trying to look at positioning and trying to figure out you know, from a product standpoint, how can we use this data to enhance our description of the game that we're giving to fans in game day and at bat and our, our other products? Um, so I think it's still been a little bit um, a little bit quiet overall, frankly, on the StatCast front, but I think we have a lot of things in the pipeline that will be available very soon uh, that are really going to raise some eyebrows and, and really start to show the, the power of what we can do with this data. And, of course, we know that a lot of the teams are using the data in proprietary ways. About what percentage of the data that StatCast generates are available to the general public or to public public analysts, and what percentage do you think is being held by the clubs as proprietary? Well, the clubs get 100% of the data. Um, everything we have every day goes to the clubs. Uh, you know, the 30 clubs equally own MLB Advanced Media. Um, it's, you know, it, it's their asset, and it's our job to provide it to them. You know, as far as public, we've really focused on things that are, that are um, enhance the products and focusing on calculated metrics rather than raw data. Uh, you know, the data, the data set is just so deep and so expansive and so detailed, uh, it's, it's probably a little overwhelming. Frankly, it is a little overwhelming. Um, so we're really focusing on building metrics and measurements that we can use to describe what's going on and put those out into the public space. Uh, if you go to baseballsavant.mlb.com, uh, the great site started by Darren Willman, there's a ton of stuff there. Um, on hitting, base running, pitching, uh, and as we get more fielding data ready in the pipeline, that'll start getting out there too. So, uh, you know, in terms of percentages, frankly, it's probably very small just because of the depth of the data set, but uh, I think there's going to be more and more stuff in the public space as we go forward that is really going to be a lot of fun for people to see. Is there a plan or schedule to release that kind of data, more of it to the public as, as you move ahead? Yeah, I think I would say there's a plan more than a timeline. You know, again, our focus is on creating metrics and measurements and calculations that we think will be instructive for fans and informative for fans about what's going on in games and helping describe the games and the players. Uh, and as we get those things ready, we'll put them out there. So um, we definitely have a goal of getting a lot more stuff into the public space by the end of this year, but I wouldn't say there's a formal timeline for we're going to put this set of data out there by this date. Um, it's rather we want to get stuff out there when it's ready, and we're sort of letting the data tell us when we think we have something that's ready to go. I'm just curious, Corey, do you get to see data and things that would help us as fantasy owners but we don't get to see, and does it give you any kind of advantage? Um, it's tough to say. Stuff that would help fantasy owners is un in understanding, obviously, pitching and hitting, uh, and a tremendous amount of that data is out there right now. Um, you know, our focus, as I said right now, internally we're working a lot on fielding. I don't know how much value that will have for traditional fantasy leagues. Um, but I think really what it boils down to, the, one of the overarching goals of the StatCast system um, that we've been talking about for years and years internally, before even it was up and running, is trying to identify skills as opposed to stats. Um, you know, we can look at a, at a stat sheet and see that a player had 25 or 30 home runs or whatever that may be. Uh, but we want to see what are the skills that contribute to that. And that's where I think it will come in healthy for, uh, helpful for fantasy players is ultimately we'll have a proxy for what the skills are, and then we can sort of worry less and less about the outcomes with the understanding that outcomes will, will show up eventually because they're a byproduct of skills. So we saw this, you know, last year we had one really good example of this with Ryan Zimmerman. We've been talking about him a lot. Uh, he had a lot of shoulder problems last year, wasn't hitting the ball very well. He went on the DL. Uh, for a couple of weeks, uh, I guess probably in May and June. 
when he came off the DL, he wasn't really hitting very much, except his exit velocity, which is a measure of how hard he's hitting the ball, obviously, was just going through the roof, um, was really up to, you know, among the league leader type of levels, even though the results weren't there. And we were all looking at this data, and he just sort of jumped out at us. We were like, oh, my gosh, this is a guy who's going to get on a hot streak soon. And he really did. In August, September, August and September, he really hit the ball well. Um, so I think that's a, a very simple example of something fantasy owners can look at. Um, is If my guy's in a slump, look at the exit velocity and figure out if he's really slumping or if he's just hitting in bad luck. You know, Giancarlo Stanton, who I mentioned earlier, he was genuinely slumping earlier in the year. The ball well now, and I think the results will continue to come because he's making great contact. The, f- the other side of that, of course, is launch angle. A guy's hitting with a negative launch angle; he's driving it into the ground. Pretty much, no matter how how hard he hits it, it's uh, home runs are likely not to follow. And I find that interaction between those two things really interesting to look at. You mentioned Baseball Savant. It's a really good site that has um, not as much data as some of us would like, uh, especially insofar as looking at grouped or uh, uh, integrated data, but it's really interesting to look at that home run uh, and bat uh, exit velocity data. It's it's fascinating, really. Yeah, and, and Tom Tango, who are, is our analyst who we hired uh, back in June, he made an interesting point in, in working with the data. You know, we, we sort of have a mantra here that we, we go where the data tells us to go. One of the things Tom realized is that exit velocity and launch angle are a little bit in opposition when it comes to hitting home runs. That based on, you know, you think about the pitchers releasing the ball at, at shoulder level or above, so it's always coming down into the strike zone where the batter's going to hit it. The batter needs to hit at a little bit of an uppercut to really strike the ball squarely, so to speak. But if you hit it, at too much of an uppercut, you'll hit a little bit of a ground ball. You want to hit a little bit below the ball to get that backspin to hit home runs. So what Tom realized is that there's actually a point of diminishing returns where you can hit the ball so hard that it shows you didn't get enough backspin on it and you're less likely to hit a home run. You, know, you think of Stanton's really best hit balls this year, the ones that go 120, 121 or whatever, a couple of those have been ground balls. Um, you know, a couple of them, even the ones that were home runs, were line drives, not those sort of high-arching, majestic home runs. You have to get under the ball to hit those, and that diminishes your exit velocity a little bit. So it's an interesting relationship there that we're looking into a little bit further um, to see if we can, you know, find something predictive in that. I often wondered when I looked at this, uh, at the launch angle data, something that struck me is because the ball is coming into the plate on a descending slope, the idea that the batter needs to have an upward swing to drive it to drive it exactly square seems to work against hitting home runs and i wonder has anybody started thinking about measuring rather than the angle of launch just the angle of the plane of the guy's swing relative to the ground so you know so that 0 degrees would be dead parallel with the ground because it seems to me that if you have a perfectly level swing and you hit a descending object it's probably more likely to go up with backspin than if you hit it squarely by meeting it on the same angle going out as it was coming in right yeah so that, you know one of the things we joke around about here and, and our our boss Bob Bowman who's the president of uh of ML of MLB.com has pointed out that StatCast isn't going to solve every argument. It's going to create new arguments. Uh, and similarly, every question that we get an answer to creates two more questions. So now we are starting to look at the, the bat angle, um, not only vertically, you know, the, that is the, you know, the level of the bat parallel to the ground, you know, what's the elevation of the swing, but also where's the right point in the strike zone um, to strike the ball. You know, it's been said that if a batter's in a slump, he wants to let the ball get deep and really see it over the plate. 
is that true or is that not true? Where is the optimal point to strike the ball based on the location of the ball over the plate, the velocity, pitch type, all that sort of stuff? And that's something that we think we can infer uh, by looking at the data we have right now. So um, it's really been sort of a fun um, you know, investigative effort trying to learn things and then realizing how much stuff we still have yet to learn. It's, it's really been fascinating and a lot of fun. Yeah, it must be, because even given the uh, relatively small portion of the data that guys like me are allowed to look at, every time you look at it, if you don't come out of there with 10 new questions to ask yourself or try to figure out uh, or just think about because the data aren't available to you or may not be even available to you guys because you're not tracking it yet, it is a really fascinating process to be to be able to use the data to think about what more data you need, how do these data fit together. Uh, as you mentioned, I was thinking, in fact, about that very idea of where should the guy be trying to hit the ball, not relative to the plate. I don't think the plate matters. I think it's relative to where his front foot is. Because I, I think about it in terms of a golf swing where they, you know, depending on what you're trying to accomplish, where you set the ball on the tee or where you've positioned your feet relative to the ball depends on what you're trying to do with the club and, and, and those kind of things, then usually a driver will, um, it's slightly forward of center, a little bit towards your front foot. And I wonder if, if there's going to be some effort to figure out where that place is for hitters relative to where they stand in the batter's box. And maybe should they move in the batter's box because the ball will be more or less accessible, especially breaking pitches relative to the, it's really interesting. Yeah. If you, you know, if you think about it, the swing basically, um, you know, is on an angle. Um, you know, as you said, the batter is, is, you know, let's say even if he's behind the home plate, the bat's going to make a line over the plate. What should the angle of that line be based on an inside pitch versus an outside pitch, a slider versus a fastball? Some pitches you do want to try and get out in front and hit them out in front. Uh, you can pull those and presumably hit them with more authority. You let the pitch travel a little bit deeper. You can hit it the other way. But are you hitting it the other way with authority or hitting a weak grounder to second base? So, you know, what's the right point to strike each pitch? Um, I think the data ultimately will give us the answer to that. And the funny thing about this is the way we came around to this particular line of research, if you will, is we were looking at the concept of pitch tunneling, which you may have read about, the notion that a pitcher throws the, you know, the same pitch out of the same release point to the same location, but one's a fastball and one's a slider. The batter has a harder time reacting to that because of when the, when the pitch actually has its break, to the batter they look like the same pitch. Um, whereas if you throw a fastball inside in a slider way, it's easier for the batter to identify those differences. So we were looking at pitch tunneling, and then it sort of led us into the notion that, well, if you're, if you're thinking about tunneling, you want to have pitches that, you know, that, that the batter has performed poorly against. You want to look at pitches where no home runs are hit and no extra base hits are produced. That's a good location to throw to. Well, then we want to look at the point of contact and figure out where's the point of contact where those hits come from. So it really points to a term I've used a lot, the theory of everything, you know, the, the movie about Stephen Hawking. All of these things that happen on the field are connected. Um, the pitch influences where the batter hits the ball. The batter hits the ball. That influences the base runner. The fielders are responding to the batted ball as well as where they think the pitch is going to be. The runners run the bases based on the positioning and the throwing arms of the fielders, all that kind of stuff. All of these things are related. All of these things are dependent on each other. And for the first 125 years or whatever in the history of baseball, we've done a, a good job, a pretty good job of measuring hitting, kind of a good job of measuring pitching, not such a good job of measuring fielding and base running. 
now we're starting to able to measure all those things and figure out how they relate to each other. Um, but, you know, again, you, you get down the rabbit hole. Like, all right, if we're looking at base running, you have to look at the lead, you have to look at the speed, you have to look at the, the, the throwing arms of the fielders, you have to look at their positioning. Uh, everything is dependent on everything else, which has been, a, a, you know, quite a challenge, but also a lot of fun. You know, as I said, each question leads you to two more questions. And that's what really makes it super interesting uh, and has so much potential down the road. Uh, is there any concern, not at the corporate level or with the with the production of these stats, because you are going to do that, but you as a fantasy owner, do you ever kind of in the back of your mind worry that once we know a, really a whole bunch about this stuff, that it's going to take a bit of the edge off the competition in fantasy because we're all going to know to a much finer degree of granularity how many home runs Giancarlo Stanton is likely to hit, rather than putting it in a range of 10, like 35 to 45, we may be able to narrow it down to 38 to 42 or something like that. Is that going to take some of the fun out of it? No, no well, not for me. <laughs> I hope not for anybody else either, because at the end of the day, as I said before, the players perform, or in some cases they don't. Um, they get injured, opportunities change, uh, roles change. And as you said, even if you nail down what a player's performance is from a skill standpoint, that doesn't mean you've nailed down that he'll hit exactly 39 home runs. Uh, it could be 34 homers or it could be 44 home runs. Um, you know, you're in a range there because of all the different factors that go into it. So can we do a little bit better job of identifying, quote-unquote, good players or bad players or, or lesser players and, you know, figure out that this guy, you know, this or that player who's off to a great start, this is more sustainable? Maybe it'll make it easier for us to do that. But, uh, you know, it's a very long season and performance changes all year long. Uh, and I think uh, ultimately it comes down to, you know, understanding the player pool, being able to make trades, being nimble in free agency. Those are all aspects of fantasy baseball that I think will continue um, to make it fun and enjoyable no matter how much data we have to help us make decisions. And last question about this. I, are, you, are you guys or are you aware of work that's being done by the clubs insofar as determining body types and those kind of things as they relate to injuries? Uh, is anybody doing any work on biomechanics to see that a, you know, we know a lot about pitching injuries in the arm because they are modeling using those um, kinesiology uh, computer programs and scanners and things like that and high-speed video to assess you know arm position, arm slot, leading elbow, trailing elbow, all these kind of things to identify whether a pitcher's at risk of having elbow problems or shoulder problems. Is anybody doing the same thing with batters and base runners as far as you know? Well, I know the teams are doing a lot of work with the data. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly what they're doing. Um, you know, our responsibility is to make sure that the data is, uh, you know, is complete and detailed and timely and that they can the clubs can sort of bring it over the, the doorstep into their front door, so to speak, um, and make use of it. What exactly the clubs do, I couldn't tell you. Uh, my expectation is that um, if 30 clubs were to tell you, they would give you 30 different answers about things that they're looking into and, and things that are important to them. Uh, and I think that's really the beauty of a data set with this level of, of depth and detail, that there are plenty of different avenues you can go down to find out useful things. Um, so I would expect that... Um, at least one club and maybe several are looking closely at how they can use this to identify injuries. Uh, maybe some clubs are looking at it from a tactical level, how to make decisions you know, within games or, or make a roster decision if we want to keep this guy over that guy. So um, 30 clubs will give you 30 different answers, and I think that's, that's a feature, not a, not a bug. And just to be clear, are you guys supplying them with biomechanical data, with video and that kind of stuff, or is that something they have to do on their own? Uh, we do supply clubs with uh, a great deal of, of video data. We well, video and the corresponding data, um, of co obviously all the tracking data from StatCast and PitchFX. Um, 
many clubs are sourcing data from a num number of different other providers in addition to us. Um, I couldn't tell you who exactly those providers are, um, and especially not on a club-by-club -club basis, but um, I do know that injury prevention is a big topic within the industry, so I would imagine that, that uh, at least one and perhaps several clubs are looking closely at that on their own as well. That would be really interesting to, to learn more about as well. It's, it's all super fascinating. It's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz from MLB.com and Major League Baseball Advanced Media. And Corey, the number of home runs this year has really shot up unexpectedly. Meanwhile, stolen bases are down quite unexpectedly. None of us saw this coming, I think it's safe to say, as we headed into the draft. So now we're faced with the prospect of managing the situation in season. Uh, how have you adjusted, if at all, to the sudden increase in home runs and the sudden decrease in stolen bases once the season started? I always try and emphasize power over speed, to be honest with you, because a home run helps you in four categories and a steal only helps you in one. Um, I came out of the draft feeling I was a little bit light in power, so I've been kind of you know, working on that all year long. Um, but we have to remember, too, that baseball is a cyclical game. Um, you know, based on a number of factors, you know, you can say this was a hitter's era or, or a pitcher's era. Um, we had huge hitter's eras in the 30s. Uh, we had another one in the 60s. Obviously, we had one in 87 and 91 and then throughout much of the 90s. And then we had a stretch for a few years where the pitchers really took charge. Um, and for the last two years, well, you know, the year plus four months, maybe the hitters are bouncing back a little bit now. So, um, you know, as Arthur Richmond told me, one of the greats of the PR industry that I was uh, lucky to work for back in the day, the wheel is round. Uh, you cannot assume that things will stay the same and, and things will always change, especially in an industry like this where uh, it's been around for a long time and will continue to be around for a long time. The hitters are hitting more home runs, but they seem to not be hitting for average in any great... Uh, there hasn't been a corresponding increase in batting average or OBP and things like that. Has that affected uh, your perception of how you want to manage your team? Uh, do you have, for instance, a lower expectation of on-base percentage that you're aiming for? Uh, usually you try to figure out where you want to be at the end of the season with regards to OBP, or are you playing that more by ear? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge targets guy. Um, you know, a lot of people do that, uh, you know, in their draft, they say, I want to come out of it with X number of home runs and X number of steals and whatever. That's never really been my approach, you know, for two reasons. Number one, exactly as you said, the offensive environment changes every year. So to think that 260 home runs would have won, won it last year, so that means it'll win it this year, I, I never bought into that. Um, and number two, rosters don't stay static. I'm going to make trades and free agent moves, and so is every other team. So you have to play to the league. So this is why I'm such a big guy on projections leading into the draft. Um, and understanding that those are very inexact as well, it gives me a feel at least for where I am relative to the league in terms of each category. Um, you know, if I project that my team has X number of home runs, it doesn't mean I'll hit, my team will hit that many, but on opening day, I think I'm strong or weak compared to the competition. Um, and that's why, you know, kind of bringing the, this part of the conversation full circle, that's why you always have to be looking at the individual categories rather than just the overall standings. Um, you know, not only how many home runs does my team have, but who's behind me, who's ahead of me, and what does their roster look like. Um, so I've really been trying to gather up more and more power all year long um, because even coming out of the draft, I never felt like I had enough. I think that's the exact way you have to play it. You have to be aware of the situation in, in each category and proceed as though the opportunities that present themselves today are going to be pretty standard, even though you kind of know in the back of your mind, no, they're not, because the guy in front of me may trade a guy away, making it easier or acquire a guy, making it harder. But in a way, you kind of have to play in the moment rather than trying to forecast exactly what's going to happen down the stretch. Although I think that maybe that changes when you hit, you know, September 1st, things are much more locked in. 
Yeah, you know, you, you constantly, you know, the first month, two months of the season, you know, you're trying to shore up what you have as far as perceived strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, obviously, a month into the season, it's tough to tell who will have a good or bad year, particularly younger players who really don't have a lot of track record to work against. So you look at it and say, okay, I, I feel like this spot isn't good or isn't good enough, and you make some moves to, to settle that. And then the later and later you get into the season, the more you look at actual performance. Um, so Stanton has 20 home runs right now. If you were to, you know, do a you know, finger quote pace, he's probably on pace for 32, 33 home runs, something like that. I'm still expecting him to hit more than that um, because now that he's healthy again and his, his exit velocity numbers are good and his recent performance is good, I'm still expecting him to end up in the upper 30s. Whereas a guy like Brandon Belt, um, I thought maybe he would have a nice little power spike this year. He did early in the year, but he's been slumping lately, and now I'm like, you know what? He's the same 18-home run guy he's always been. I need more power. Um, so, you know, the more performance you have to look at, the more the performance weighs on you as opposed to in the beginning of the year when it's perception and expectations. Corey, this has been a, a real treat, as always. Uh, tell us where listeners can keep track of Corey Schwartz. I'm on uh, Twitter at Schwartzstops, and I would also encourage everybody to follow at Fantasy411 on Twitter, uh, Fred Zinke and the whole uh, fantasy team tweet on that account, and they do awesome stuff. So uh, it's not just me. I'm a small cog in the big machine, and I encourage everybody to check out Fantasy 411 on Twitter. And I also urge everybody who's listening to the podcast, go check out some of the advanced stats that are available uh, at uh, Baseball Savant and some of the other websites that we've talked about here today. I know it's sometimes the math seems a little daunting, but Corey and his team, they really do a tremendous job in creating metrics that we can all use and understand. Uh, Corey, uh, thanks again for helping us out today, and uh, best of luck the rest of the way. Oh, thanks very much, Patrick. Corey Schwartz is Vice President of Stats at MLB.com and MLB Advanced Media. We ran into a technical glitch with the phone during Corey's studs and duds picks. If you're keeping track at home, his stud hitters were Didi Gregorius of the Yankees in the American League and Miami catcher JT Real Muto in the National, his stud pitchers Carlos Carrasco of Cleveland in the AL, and Jeremy Hellickson of Philadelphia in the National League. Corey's duds, more like buy-low candidates, poor performers with upside for the rest of the year, in Corey's opinion. His American League hitter Chase Headley of the Yankees, his National League pick Miami slugger Giancarlo Stanton. On the mound, Corey went with Michael Pineda of the Yankees in the American League and Gio Gonzalez of Washington in the National. We have our Baseball HQ Radio commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. During the season, BaseballHQ.com has regular daily analysis of news and rosters and ongoing analysis of player performance skills. This week at the site, our regular daily news analysis in playing time today has looked at Boston catcher Sandy Leon, Pittsburgh starter Jamison Tyon, and many other players and roster moves. In our regular Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage, Brian Rudd studies looked at Starling Marte, Jacob DeGrom, and other players. And we have groundbreaking fantasy research, like Eric Florimonte's detailed look this week at using strikeouts minus walks to find buying opportunities among starting pitchers. 
BaseballHQ.com also has forward-looking roster analysis with playing time tomorrow. Very important during this trade season. We have daily matchup reports and a daily fantasy dashboard for DFS and streaming players. There's some minor league scouting and, of course, our industry-leading projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. And it's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for those regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Dodgers outfield prospect Alex Verdugo is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Coming into the season, the Los Angeles Dodgers had some of the best young arms in baseball in Jose De Leon, Julio Urias, and Frankie Montas. But the player who has made the most rapid progress is outfielder Alex Verdugo. The 20-year-old Verdugo was the Dodgers' second-round pick in 2014 out of high school in Arizona. Verdugo had an impressive full-season debut in 2015, hitting .311 with 32 doubles and 9 home runs between low and high A. So the Dodgers challenged him with a jump to double A this year, and Verdugo has responded well. Verdugo has a compact stroke with good bat speed and makes consistent hard contact. For now, he has a line drive approach, but he has enough raw power to make an impact once he reaches the majors. Verdugo split time between center field and right field, and his plus arm make him an ideal right fielder down the road once he reaches the majors. On the year, Alex Verdugo is hitting 300 with a 361 on on-base percentage and a 466 slugging percentage. He has 17 doubles and 11 home runs and 313 at-bats. Verdugo doesn't walk much, but he barrels the ball consistently and has the tools to hit 280 with 20 home runs at his peak. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our ongoing daily call-ups coverage this week looks at prospects like Dodgers left-hander Grant Dayton, Washington right-handers Coda Glover, and top prospect Ronaldo Lopez, and many others. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at some potential trade followed in Philadelphia, as well as filling the Prince Fielder void in Texas. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. As we continue to look at potential trade ripples of the upcoming trade deadline in this segment, we turn to Philadelphia, where the Phillies sit over 10 games back and have an excellent trade ship at their disposal in Jean-Marc Gomez at the back of the bullpen. Gomez has emerged from a career as a back-end starter and middle reliever to save 26 games for the Phils with a 2.76 ERA in 46 innings. Gomez has posted solid ERAs over the last few seasons, but his underlying skills failed to measure up to his surface performance with a soft tossing 5.7 strikeouts per nine and a well below average 74 base performance value or BPV. Should Philly decide to move Gomez, which would more than make sense right now, there are a couple options lurking that could sneak in for saves over the season's last two months. The first one's Hector Neris. He stands out as the team's best plan B. He's been just as good as Gomez with a 270 ERA, but he's been much better underlying skills-wise as he struck out 61 hitters to just 17 walks in 50 innings with a very much closer-worthy 138 BPV. 
Other options include David Hernandez and Andrew Bailey, both of whom have some closer experience, but their skills and results pale in comparison to Neris. Hernandez has an ERA near 450, while Bailey's is above 5, and both have strikeout-to-walk ratios below 3.0. They both have far less attractive skills than Neris overall, who stands as an excellent save speculation down the stretch, should Philly trade John Mark Gomez. To the AL we go to Texas, where Prince Fielder's disaster of a season is probably over thanks to a herniated disc in his neck. Drixon Profar stands in as the major beneficiary, as he'll likely get most of the at-bats as the primary DH in Arlington going forward. Profar's injuries as a prospect have been well chronicled, but he's still just 23 and he's hitting around 300 with four homers through 138 at-bats. Profar's skills suggest he has some work to do, though, as his 265 expected batting average says fewer hits are coming up in the future. His power metrics say that the homers will be few and far between, at least for now, and while Profar has decent speed, he hasn't used it at all in Texas. Keeper League owners looking to win now might certainly want to use Profar's name recognition, prospect pedigree, and newfound playing time as a bargaining chip for a run to the title. Mitch Moreland is another big winner in the Texas shuffle as he'll try and salvage what's been a rough 2016 season. Moreland's hitting just 235 with 13 homers and 268 at-bats. Better days might be ahead for Moreland though as his expected batting average sits closer to 250. The power skills are still there and he hits lefties well enough to play every day at first base. Another highlight to track here is the possibility of Jurix and Profar being a trade ship in real life at this year's trade deadline. Texas desperately needs pitching as Houston catches up to them in the AL West, and Profar may be the perfect trade ship right now. Such a deal might open up some playing time for guys like Ryan Rua or Delano DeShields Jr., who was recently recalled to the majors and could provide a stolen base boost if DeShields can recapture 2015 skills. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has a playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Houston prospect Alex Bregman and Seattle reliever Edwin Diaz. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. As we get closer to the trade deadline, there have been a few interesting developments. This week's edition of frequent flyers will profile a hitter who recently delivered a cryptic message and a Seattle pitcher who recently broke Hall of Famer Randy Johnson's franchise record of striking out 10 batters in a row, a record that has stood since July 1997. But first, let's talk about Houston shortstop Alex Bregman, who has become a household name among prospects with his six home runs and 371 batting average in only 16 games at AAA Fresno. Through two levels of the minors in 2016, the second overall pick in the 2015 draft behind Dansby Swanson is currently batting 314 with 20 home runs. Alex Bregman has an 88% contact rate in the minors with an OPS over 1,000 for 2016. However, Houston already has Carlos Correa at shortstop, and the Astros are expecting Cuban third baseman Ulysses Gurriel to arrive in a few weeks. 
As a result, Alex Bregman has been taking reps at third base and even left field besides playing shortstop in anticipation of a possible promotion. When will that promotion come? On a local talk show on Sports Radio 610 in Houston last Tuesday, July 19th, Alex Bregman seemed to provide some very interesting clues. Although he said they didn't know specifically when he would be called up, he mentioned, in response to a question, they pictured his first major league at bat coming against a player wearing red and gray. As we know, the Angels are in town this weekend, opening a three-game series against the Astros on July 22nd through 24th, and the Angels wear red and gray on the road. To be clear, we don't know exactly when Alex Bregman will receive the call. That's why Alex Bregman, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Even so, the Astros did option struggling first baseman A.J. Reed to Fresno on Thursday, July 21st, but instead of calling up Alex Bregman, it sounds like outfielder Preston Tucker may receive the call. Nevertheless, timing is everything in fantasy baseball, and it appears that Alex Bregman's time is coming very soon. Grab him if you can. Now let's turn our attention to Seattle, where the Mariners are currently three games behind the Astros in the AL West, and 22-year-old flame-throwing right-handed reliever Edwin Diaz is making quite an impression. Edwin Diaz has allowed five total earned runs this season and 20 appearances in 2016 to post a 218 ERA for the Mariners. Plus, he has held opponents scoreless in 16 of his 20 Major League appearances after making his Major League debut on June 6th. Speaking of his Major League debut, did you know that four of the 11 pitches that Edwin Diaz needed to retire the Indians in order on June 6th hit triple digits? That's right, Edwin Diaz threw 10 of his 11 pitches for strikes as Major League debut, and four of those hit over 100 miles per hour. Ironically, though, his 101 mile per hour fastball is not necessarily his best pitch. After changing his grip, Edwin Diaz now has an almost unhittable slider. Perhaps his 101 mile per hour fastball and his nearly unhittable slider are two of the biggest reasons for his dominance rate of. 18.3 strikeouts per nine in 2016. Let me repeat that. Edwin Diaz has a dominance rate of 18.3 strikeouts per nine in 2016, almost three times a benchmark of seven set by BaseballHQ.com to indicate baseball's best pitchers. In fact, Edwin Diaz, at 18.3 strikeouts per nine, has the highest dominance rate in Major League Baseball right now, with a minimum of 10 innings pitched. Yet his 178 XERA for 2016 so far is almost a full point below his projected XERA of 274 for 2016, signaling possible regression. Combine that with his 91% strand rate in 2016, and it's easy to see why we believe that Edwin Diaz may have an artificially low ERA at this point. Even so, Edwin Diaz has increased his velocity, according to BaseballHQ.com, from 96.4 miles per hour in June to 97.6 miles per hour in July, and may be in the mix to close eventually. After all, anything can happen at the trade deadline, and that's why you should consider adding Alex Bregman and Edwin Diaz, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about spelunking in the endless caverns of StatCast data. 
Earlier in the podcast, I talked with Corey Schwartz, the Director of Stats for MLB Advanced Media. Corey's part of the team that has developed and installed a lot of the advanced systems for gathering ever more detailed data about player performance. You've probably heard about the latest system called StatCast. StatCast uses a series of ultra-high resolution cameras as well as radar equipment to accurately track the location and movements of the baseball and every player on the field, including the batter, the pitcher, all the defenders, and all the base runners. About the only guy they don't track is the drunk who jumps out of the bleachers and staggers around the outfield, or the security guys who run him down. Not yet, anyway. StatCast provides the 30 clubs, major league broadcasters, and increasingly everyday fans and baseball researchers with a vast amount of information. As you heard Corey say, most of it is still proprietary. The clubs do their own data analysis and they keep their results to themselves for obvious competitive reasons. But there's a lot of info for us, too. You might already have checked out data from PitchFX, an earlier data collection system on Brooks Baseball or Fangraphs. And now we can all access some of the early data from StatCast through a website called BaseballSavant.com. I'm pretty new to the site and I'm still just nosing around, but I've already dug out what I think are some interesting data on exit velocity, the speed of the ball off the bat once it is struck. I wanted to see how strongly exit velocity links to home run performance. I started at BaseballSavant.com by clicking the StatCast leaderboard link and then downloading a little database with exit velocity and other data on every hitter who had more than 30 batted ball events. Major League Baseball defines those as any batted ball that produced an out, a hit, or an error. I cut the list of more than 500 almost in half by taking only those whose home runs per 600 plate appearances, which I call HR 600 for short, is 20 or more this season. The first step many researchers use when assessing the connection between two variables, like in this case between exit velocity and homers, is to run a quick Excel correlation between them. Correlation values run from minus 1.0 to positive 1.0. A minus 1.0 is a perfect negative correlation. As one variable goes up, the other goes down in perfect proportion. A plus 1.0 is the opposite. It's a perfect positive correlation with the two variables rising proportionately together. A 0.0 is no correlation at all. The two variables are moving independently of each other. The StatCast batter data available at Savant offer three exit velocity measures for each hitter, a maximum, a minimum, and an average. I ran correlations for all three against HR600. Average exit velocity had a weak correlation of 0.36. Maximum exit velocity, somewhat surprisingly, was even weaker than average, at 0.24. And minimum exit velocity, not surprisingly, had almost no correlation at all, at 0.09. Fortunately, the data set also included exit velocity by batted ball type, one exit velocity average for ground balls and another for combined line drives and fly balls. You won't be shocked to hear that exit velocity for the line drive fly ball category correlated with reasonable strength at 0.53. Think of that as line drive fly ball exit velocity explaining about 53% of what makes home runs. I tried to improve the correlation by multiplying in each hitter's fly ball percentage as fly ball plus line drive percentage and those kinds of things, but the correlation did not improve. 
From some external reading, I learned that exit velocity for home runs is usually above 95 miles per hour. So it seemed intuitive that batters who had a lot of batted ball events with fly ball line drive exit velocities over 95 miles an hour should generate more home runs than those under. So I sorted the hitters high to low using their average fly ball line drive exit velocities. And what do you know? The top 10% in average exit velocity included sluggers like Nelson Cruz, Chris with a K Davis, Chris Carter, Jake Lamb, Josh Donaldson, Giancarlo Stanton, Mark Trumbo, David Ortiz, Jose Bautista, Miguel Cabrera, Miguel Sano, Joanna Cespedes, and Jock Peterson. That's a lot of thump. Given that connection, the next step was to look for outliers. It seemed possible that we might expect more home run production from such high-velocity hitters as Justin Bauer, Eric Hosmer, Christian Yelich, and Tommy Pham. At the same time, it looked like we might want to be suspicious of the home run production of batters with low average fly ball line drive exit velocity, like Adam Duvall, Brandon Moss, Chris with a K Davis, and even Bryce Harper. At this point, I suspect you might have some questions about all of this, like, huh, what, exit what, Bryce Harper, huh? And well, you might ask. Remember, the correlation said exit velocity was explaining about half of home runs, and simple ciphering tells us that leaves half of home run production unexplained. Research has shown another critical component is also measured by StatCast. It's launch angle. Launch angle is the angle the ball takes as it leaves the bat. Parallel to the ground or perfectly horizontal is 0 degrees, straight up in the air is 90 degrees, and straight down is minus 90 degrees. The optimum launch angle for home runs is a matter of some dispute among analysts, but a consensus seems to have formed setting the launch angle range for optimal home run production between 20 degrees and 35 degrees, although some say it's much narrower, more like 25 to 30. Unfortunately, the StatCast data at Savant don't include aggregated launch angle information on each player. You have to click an individual player and then dig into his batted ball event record to check his launch angles. I did that, randomly selecting one seeming homer underperformer, Christian Yelich, and one seeming overperformer, Adam Duvall. Here's what I found. Yelich had 228 batted ball events. Of those, 21 had both the 95 mile an hour exit velocity and an optimum angle. Seven of those turned out to be home runs. Seven more were extra base hits. Duvall had 205 batted ball events, of which 38 had the optimal combination of velocity and angle. Of those 38 optimal balls, 21 went out of the park. He had another home run with a bit too high a launch angle at 39 degrees, but it got out of the yard because of its thunderous 107-mile-an-hour exit velocity. His other optimals resulted in six doubles, a triple, and four flyouts that went more than 370 feet, including a 409-foot moonshot flyball out to dead center in Coors Field. These examples suggest that Duval, as an individual hitter, is full value for his home runs despite his low average exit velocity on line drives and fly balls. Meanwhile, we might expect Yelich, again as an individual hitter, to pick up his home run pace, although we've been waiting a while for him to show some more pop. Of course, there are still other factors at play. Yelich plays his home games in a relatively terrible park for left-handed home runs, and he plays divisional games in Washington and Atlanta, which also suppress left-handed power. Duval's Cincinnati home, on the other hand, is one of the most homerific in Major League Baseball, and he gets a healthy number of road at-bats in Wrigley Field and Miller Park, which also boost right-handed power. 
These data look to have tremendous potential to identify hidden or sleeper power sources. Regrettably, we can't yet use the StatCast data from Savant to check all the hitters quickly because the data set with all batters' batted ball events is not available in one single file. For the moment, we need to identify home run outliers as we did earlier, looking at aggregated fly ball, line drive, exit velocity data, then digging into the individual player records. Eventually, maybe we'll be able to capture the whole database or query it to pick out batters within the home run velocity angle sweet spot. That would let us more accurately and more quickly pick out and assess outliers high and low. I can hardly wait. In the meantime, even if you aren't a number cruncher, go take a look at the data for yourself. The full URL is baseballsavant.mlb.com. Start by clicking on the StatCast leaderboard link and just go from there. And have fun! For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 35 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Stats at MLB.com and MLB Advance Media. Corey's a great guy, always willing to fill us in on these advances in the statistics, and boy, it makes me excited for the things that are yet to come. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield, and our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. Early next week, I'll have a fact and fluke spotlight at BaseballHQ.com, taking a deep dive look at Arizona left-handed starter Robbie Ray. In the meantime, I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Thursday. Yes, a day early. And our featured guest expert will be Scott Pianowski, lead fantasy sports writer at Yahoo Sports and a terrific guest on our show. Scott Pianowski on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.